You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Yo, Expo, a.k.a. Winston Smith. Hasta la victoria siempre. I turn my TV upside down when I watch the news. And I hope that instead of lies I get a little truth. I hate to see you accepting the cards you dealt. Don't pray for peace, make it happen yourself. Yo, imagine a feeling of tanks storming your land. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 26th day of September, 2010. I'd like to welcome all the listeners to the Corbett Report and invite them all, as always, to check into my websites, CorbettReport.com, ClimateGate.tv, AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, ReportageBook.com, and NewWorldNextWeek.Blip.TV, where you can watch and download episodes of my v- weekly video series with James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com. I'd also like to invite listeners to help support those websites that support the Corbett Report, including MediaMonarchy.com, ZeroPointRadio.com, AltBib.com, and Archive.org. Now, this is the last week for listeners to get their ideas in for episode 150 of the Corbett Report, due to be released next Sunday, October 3rd, uh, how to defeat the New World Order. So I'd like to encourage all of those listeners who have not yet done so to get their ideas in, either by using the contact form on the homepage, CorbettReport.com, or by phoning 512-553-0297. That's 512-553-0297 to leave a voicemail message of your idea or to make a video and to leave a video response on my YouTube video announcing episode 150 under the title How to Defeat the New World Order on YouTube. Secondly, I'd like to let listeners know about some of the radio appearances that I've made recently, including last Saturday night when I was a guest on Truth Frequency Radio, and I'll include a link so that people can download that interview from the Truth Frequency website. And I was also a guest on Radio Liberty with Stan Monteith last Friday night, and again, I'll also include a link to download that in the documentation section for today's episode. But we have a lot of information, as always, to cover today, so let's get straight into today's Sunday update. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 26th day of September 2010. And now, for the real news. The UK's Revenue and Customs Agency has proposed that British employers send all employee paychecks directly to the government, which will then deduct whatever tax it deems appropriate before sending the remaining funds to the employee via bank transfer. Today, the majority of employer payrolls are connected to the electronic payment infrastructure, the report reads. Under centralized deductions, the employer would send the gross payment through the electronic payment system to a central calculator where the deductions calculated by HMRC would be made automatically. The resulting net payment would then be sent to the individual's bank account, and the deductions would be paid directly to the government. Even the most ardent government supporters are decrying the proposal, noting that such a system would be rife with possibilities for mistakes, corruption, and vulnerabilities. If HMRC has direct access to employees' bank accounts and makes a mistake, People are going to feel very exposed and vulnerable, said George Bull, head of tax at Baker Tilly, about the proposal. There has to be some very clear understanding of how quickly repayments were made if there was a mistake. Even more worrying than the near certainty of mistakes in such a system, however, is the implicit extension of government control over every aspect of a citizen's lives that such a proposal grants. The UK is already the most surveilled society on the planet, with an estimated 4.5 million CCTV cameras keeping track of citizens' every movement, a £2 billion program for the government to access records of every phone call, every email, every text message, and every website visit made by the public, 
a programme of family intervention projects in which thousands of UK families have been put under 24-hour supervision with CCTV cameras placed by the government inside their own homes to make sure that children attend school and go to bed on time, and pilot programmes for citizens to be given access to the CCTV feeds so they can spy on other citizens. A new program that's been developed in North London, which is called the Shoreditch Digital Bridge Project. And what the local council has done there is given all of its local residents um, access to all of the CCTV footage live as it's happening through um, their, their television. They've got special boxes. So what you have is people bunkered down in their, in their flats and their homes, watching their neighbors and checking out for criminal activity. I think it poses very difficult questions about human rights. And I think it also poses very difficult questions about the relationship of the state with the citizen, in this case being used as a kind of spy. This is moving down the route that, for example, East Germany had in the uh, 1950s and the 1960s, where eventually one-sixth of the population were police informers of various kinds, keeping watch on other people. I think this is moving towards a state where we have individuals acting on behalf of the state um, trying to enforce the goals of the state. This is a very dangerous route to go down. What all of these steps towards centralized surveillance and control over every aspect of every citizen's lives indicate is the 21st century enactment of an 18th century idea known as the Panopticon. 1787, an architect invented the perfect prison and called it the Panopticon. The prisoners would be seen wherever they were but would never know if they were being watched. It was designed to control the prisoners using surveillance alone and was seen as the ultimate power of mind over mind. No panopticons were ever built, but Tony Blair's most expensive legacy will be to have turned the entire country into a perfect prison. The government wants to put a tracking device in every car on the road. Surveillance cameras are being connected to directional microphones as well as facial recognition software so they will always know where you are and what you are saying. Now with the UK government seeking to not only surveil all economic transactions but to actually take full control of every single citizen's paycheck, there are signs that the public may finally be being stirred into action. In recent years, data collected by European nations about their citizens are not being stored in national databases, but in vast regional databases, storing information on every citizen in Europe. Earlier this month, protesters gathered in Berlin to protest against growing state surveillance and intervention in EU citizens' lives. This sort of mass demonstration would have been inconceivable merely 20 years ago, but of course, in two decades, our technologies have advanced hugely. Now, every single time you go on the internet, your employer or your internet provider can trace what websites you have been to. Every single time you walk on the streets, you are being recorded by multiple CCTV cameras. Every single time you make a purchase, this financial information gets logged to your bank and once again to the authorities. What this requires is greater trust from the government. But of course, these people are saying you cannot trust the government, specifically because once information used to be kept by your national government. Now, increasingly, it's being collected in Europe. In 2009, something called the Stockholm Programme was implemented. Make no mistake about it, this is a major change in the way that data is being collected about every citizen in the European Union. Instead of just being kept at the national level, it's now all going to be gathered at these huge European-wide databases. What these protesters want to know is why. Who's going to be accountable for how this information is used? There's no transparency about how this information is used. So they're saying that the European Union has no right to simply control all of its hundreds of millions of citizens. In other news, one of the journalistic world's leading opponents of news censorship is, ironically enough, being censored for attempting to raise questions about 9-11. Dr. Peter Phillips and Mickey Huff, directors of the famed anti-censorship media watchdog group Project Censored, appeared on KPFA's Guns and Butter program last week to reveal how a so-called progressive think tank called the Institute for Policy Studies has rejected an op-ed piece that they were contracted to write for a publication called Minutemen Media on the grounds that they dared to include information indicating 9-11 was an inside job. 
And so we mentioned the scientific studies done by Stephen Jones and the Open Chemical Physics Journal, and, and we included Richard Gage and the Architects and Engineers group, over 1,200 uh, professionals now saying that the, the story, the official story, and the official quote-unquote science just doesn't make sense and doesn't add up. I mean, it defies what we know about scientific methodology and so forth. And so Peter and I included those examples, academic research pieces, fully noted. And, you know, the, I footnoted this piece, and it was two pages of footnotes for a one-and-a-half-page article. So we were serious about it. And they, they literally told us that they were not going to publish anything that talked about 9-11. Um, and we were dumbfounded. You know, at first we were waiting for the laugh tracks to come up and everything to be like, oh, we're censoring Project Censored. Um, but no, they were deadly serious. They, um, they said, no, we're not going to, to run this and we will not run anything on 9-11. Although particularly ironic, given that Project Censored has received numerous accolades for their role in decrying media censorship in the past, the fact that 9-11 Truth is being actively censored by establishment media outfits on both the left and the right sides of the phony left-right political paradigm will come as no surprise to longtime observers of the media. In the latest faux controversy about the uncontroversial idea that the US government has been covering up key information about 9-11, Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's recent call for the UN to continue to probe the nature of the 9-11 attacks allowed BBC Persia to give Barry Sotoro a chance to express mock outrage over the idea of an independent investigation into those attacks. President Obama had strong words today for Iranian President Ahmadinejad, who suggested in a speech at the United Nations yesterday that the U.S. government was behind the 9-11 attacks. Well, it was offensive. It was hateful. Especially, he said, because the comments were made not far from ground zero. Where families lost their loved ones, uh, people uh, of all faiths, all ethnicities. For, for him to make a statement like that uh, was uh, inexcusable. As usual, the very media outlets that have fallen over themselves to report on the staged Obama Ahmadinejad spat have failed to do any actual reporting on the issue, such as asking 9-11 victims' family members if they actually do question the official government investigation of those attacks. I lost my son, my nephew, my uncle, my son, on September 11th, 2001. Most people don't know that a third tower fell on September 11th. World Trade Center 7, a 47-story skyscraper, was not hit by a plane. Although the official explanation is that fire brought down Building 7, over 1,200 architects and engineers have looked into the evidence and believe there is more to the story. Bring justice to my son, my uncle, my nephew, my son, and thousands of others who died on September 11th. Go to buildingwhat.org. Nor will the media actually bother to report on the published surveys that show that the vast majority of the public does indeed question the events of 9-11, including a 2004 Zogby poll showing 66% of New Yorkers want a new 9-11 investigation and that half of New Yorkers believe that the government consciously failed to act on foreknowledge of the attacks. And a 2006 Angus Reid poll showing that over 70% of Americans believe the government is lying or hiding something about 9-11. Nor will the media bother to report on the former president of Italy's assertion that the attacks were planned and realized by the CIA and Mossad, the former German defense minister's book on the CIA in September 11th, or his subsequent remarks that the whole U.S. government should end up behind bars, high-ranking Japanese government official Yukihisa Fujita presenting factual evidence about the impossibility of the official story of 9-11 on the floor of the Japanese diet, or the American mayors, state representatives, counselors, policy analysts, and senior staff members who have signed on to a petition by the political leaders for 9-11 Truth demanding a new investigation into the attacks. Nor will the establishment media ever report on the list of military professionals, lawyers, journalists, scientists, scholars, veterans, architects, engineers, pilots, or firefighters who question the official 9-11 narrative, as such reporting might undermine the official government media myth that there exists no mass movement of informed professionals who in any way doubt the idea that 9-11 can be unproblematically blamed on 19 devout Muslims who like to go to strip clubs, drink alcohol, and do drugs, and whose passports and personal memorabilia were impervious to fires that were, apparently, hot enough to weaken structural steel. Look for media-created hype over the Ahmadinejad comments to continue, even as so-called mainstream media outlets continue to lose readers, viewers, and listeners at record rates, and mass layoffs continue at media bastions like Newsweek, CNN, and ABC News. 
Finally this week, the Canadian government has launched a cover-up commission to not investigate the core issues surrounding the fact that government officials lied to the public about the scope and extent of supposedly secret laws that were passed in the run-up to this year's G20 event in Toronto. It was announced this week that the Ontario government had appointed former Ontario Chief Justice Roy McMurtry to head an examination of the Public Works Protection Act that was fraudulently used to deny Canadians of their rights under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The week after the G20 summit, Toronto Police, Police Chief Bill Blair admitted that he had knowingly lied to the public about the laws governing the event. The day before the summit, numerous media outlets incorrectly reported that there was a five-meter zone around the summit's perimeter fence in downtown Toronto that allowed police to violate Canadians' constitutional rights to freedom from unwarranted searches, and even that there was no limits to police powers in the so-called red zone. Now, instead of examining the larger issues of police provocateuring documented by numerous journalists at the event, the attacks on unarmed and peacefully assembled protesters throughout Toronto, the accusations that unlawfully detained protesters were sexually assaulted by police, or the issue of how and why the summit was held in downtown Toronto, or why it cost Canadian taxpayers $1 billion to host the summit, this new cover-up commission will solely focus on the implementation of the Public Works Act. Natalie DeRossi's of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association pointed out that the review is inadequate to the scope of the problems raised at the G20, and that a full public inquiry at the federal level is needed to resolve all of the outstanding issues raised by the summit. I don't think we'll learn much about the G20 except that it was the occasion to use the Public Works Protection Act, a statute that nobody has heard much about, she told CBC News last week. Look for the review to conclude that lying to citizens and violating their constitutional rights was perfectly okay, and look for absolutely no government official to face any form of reprimand over the affair. Now please go to CorporateReport.com to download episode 148 of The Corporate Report, Media Kills, in which we examine the nexus between government, media, and public relations. Welcome to episode 150 of The Corbett Report, Media Kills. And if you are one of the people who are listening to my voice right now, chances are that you are one of the people who have turned away from the establishment media as your one and only source of information and have decided to find information through alternative media outlets. And I'm sure that many of my listeners are not disappointed for having made that decision. In fact, that's a decision that I myself made just a few short years ago before I started the Corbett Report when I discovered the extent to which the corporate media and the foundation-funded media was lying to me and to everyone, really. And it can be quite overwhelming when one encounters the extent and the scope of the lie that we've been fed all our lives for the first time. It can feel a little bit like Neo being jacked out of the Matrix and discovering that he's in the pod. But perhaps there comes a point after being immersed in the alternative media for a number of years that we begin to forget the ironclad grip that the establishment media has on the minds of most of the general public. It can be good from time to time to remind ourselves of the scale, the scope, and the extent of the lies that the corporate media expounds on a daily basis and the very real effect that those lies have on human lives around the world. The lies themselves are so bald-faced, so ridiculous, so completely 180 degrees from everything that's true and real, that it would almost be funny if we could be detached observers of this. But given the fact that today's title is very apt, and it is very true that media does kill and does result in the deaths of millions upon millions of people, it is no laughing matter So let's start today by just collecting a few of the most egregious examples of disgusting, bald-faced lies that result in misery, tragedy, and yes, death. Here's tonight's medical headlines with Medical Watch reporter Seema Mather. Mercury-containing vaccines may help not harm kids, according to two new studies in the journal Pediatrics. There have been widespread concerns that mercury-based preservatives and vaccines might impair the neurological development of children. These new studies suggest that the opposite, that the preservatives may actually be associated with improved behavior and mental performance. 
about inflation, that's another interesting point because a lot of people like to say uh, scaremonger about China, right? A lot of politicians, and I know you talk about that issue all the time. I think people should be careful what they wish for on China. You know, if China were to revalue its currency or China is to start making, say, toys that don't have lead in them or food that isn't poisonous, their costs of production are going to go up, and that means prices at Walmart here in the United States are going to go up too. So I would say China is our greatest friend right now. They're keeping prices low and they're keeping prices for mortgages low. Elizabeth Cohen is joining us now with tips for mums in this week's Empowered Patients. So Elizabeth, I'm guessing those mums have plenty of questions because this will be first time around dealing with this for many of them. That's right. This would be the first time that anyone will get an H1N1 vaccine. As you can imagine, when you're pregnant, you're so worried about everything you put in your body, the foods you eat, the drugs you take. And now uh, the Centers for Disease Control is saying, hey, take this vaccine that we just finished testing. You're going to be in the first crop of pregnant women to get the H1N1 vaccine. So a lot of the women who have written to us in our Empowered Patient Inbox are telling us, oh, gee, I'm really worried. I don't want to be a guinea pig. I don't want to be in that first group to get the H1N1 vaccine. But then there are other women who say, you know what, I've heard a lot, and you see them. one of them right there, her name is Amy Wolf. Uh, Amy said, I've heard a lot about how H1N1 is particularly vicious for pregnant women. It's killed a small number, but it has killed some pregnant women. Plus, Amy wants to be able to protect her unborn child. You see there, she's saying hello to it. Um, and her baby is due at the end of the month. He's a little boy. And she would like her little boy to be protected against H1N1. The only way that she can do that is to get a shot while she's pregnant. So she's joined a clinical trial. Now the reason, this is actually kind of fascinating. When a baby is born, the baby cannot get a swine flu shot until he's six months of age. Ah, so too you, vulnerable? Too vulnerable, all sorts of reasons. So they don't give the shot until six months of age. But Amy got the shot the other day, I was with her, and her baby will probably get, get protection from that shot. Let me ask you an honest question. Are you gonna do a sit-down interview with Bob McElveen? I don't know. So that's a no. I would urge you to do that. So that's the thing. You're here to interview us, but you're not here to interview a family member. Why is that? Why is that? I'm curious. I told you I don't know. You don't know. You're the producer, aren't you? No, I'm the reporter. You're the reporter? Well, why can't you at least sit down with Bob McElveen and interview him just for the hell of it? I would urge you to. I, I, I mean, we, this has been a very emotional actually, interview. Because you've actually been here. You've had an opportunity to speak to all these people that could actually talk to you about the loved ones they lost, the actual pain and grief that they've had to go through. And instead, you're sitting here interviewing us. So why is that? Why is it easier to interview us than the actual people who are affected by 9-11? Because you don't want to interview them. No, no, I don't you're think so. Because you're not doing your job. You are not doing your job. It's plain and simple. Thank you. Nice interview. Nice to meet you. This March, members of a Midwestern militia were arrested and charged with conspiring to kill police officers. A video posted on the group's website shows them training for armed combat. Prosecutors said they were planning an attack for the purpose of setting off what they hoped would be an anti-government uprising. In the last year in particular, we have seen militias, which were really a big deal back in the 1990s, simply come roaring back. Mark Podock is the director of the Intelligence Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center, where he tracks extreme right-wing groups. Always speak before Barack Obama, <laughs> not after Barack Obama. I have to tell you, you know, it's, it's part of reporting this case, uh, uh, this election. The feeling most people get when they hear a Barack Obama speech, my, I felt this thrill going up my leg. I mean, well, I don't have that too often. Steady. No, seriously. But see, we've gone from... There's no move for a world government. It doesn't exist. Nuts talk about it, too. You can't prove the world government that's being formed is murderous. I'm, I'm not even granting you that there's a world government being formed. Yeah, and that's why you're discredited. He calls himself Abu Muhammad. It's not his real name. He still fears the long arm of Saddam Hussein's military. Although al-Hadiri's claims would be widely circulated, the man himself was not made available to the media in general. His story was given to just two outlets, hand-picked by the American-backed exiled Iraqi opposition movement, the Iraqi National Congress, or INC. The print story was given to New York Times reporter Judith Miller, She's now being criticized after revelations that most of her stories about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction 
a topic upon which she built a reputation as a specialist, came from one source, the leader of the INC, Ahmed Chalabi. The chosen television outlet was ABC TV in Australia, through freelance cameraman and journalist Paul Moran. Moran was later killed in Iraq while working for the ABC. The Australian Navy is pushing closer to the Iraq. Now it has been revealed that Moran worked extensively for the INC and with a company working for American intelligence and the Pentagon, employed to spread anti-Saddam propaganda. And Al-Hadiri's story certainly hit that mark. After his debut on ABC TV and in the New York Times, Al-Hadiri went into hiding, reportedly given protection by the CIA. His claims were reprinted and broadcast by dozens of other media outlets throughout the world, greatly influencing both public and government opinion. But coalition forces have yet to find any sign of the numerous facilities detailed by Adnan Al-Hadiri. And on, and on, and on, and on, ad infinitum. And I'm sure that my listeners don't need to be told that there are many, many, many more examples, many of which we've covered on past episodes of this podcast, and I'm sure many more that we will cover in the future, because there is really never an end to the establishment media lies, since the establishment media's sole purpose is to maintain the status quo for the benefit of the ruling oligarchy. This is a particularly well-understood and by now relatively uncontroversial understanding of what's going on in the media. In fact, it is so uncontroversial that it is even well-understood by Mr. Warren Commission and 9-11 Commissioner, okay by me himself, Noam Chomsky. From Washington, D.C., he's intellectual, author, and linguist, uh, Professor Noam Chomsky. Manufacturing Consent. What is that title meant to describe? Well, the title is actually borrowed from uh, a book by Walter Lippmann, written back uh, around 1921, in which he described what he called the manufacture of consent as a revolution in the practice of democracy. What it amounts to is a technique of control. Uh, and he said this was useful and necessary because uh, the common interests, the general concerns of all people, elude the public public just isn't up to dealing with them, and they have to be the domain of what he called a specialized class. Uh, notice that that's the opposite of the standard view about democracy. Uh, there's a version of this expressed by the uh, highly respected moralist and theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, who was very influential on contemporary policymakers. Uh, his view was that rationality belongs to the cool observer. But because of the stupidity of the average man, he follows not reason but faith. And this naive faith requires necessary illusion and emotionally potent oversimplifications, which are provided by the mythmaker to keep the ordinary person on course. It's not the case, as the naive might think, that indoctrination is inconsistent with democracy. Rather, as this whole line of thinkers observes, it's the essence of democracy. The point is that in a military state or a feudal state or what we would nowadays call a totalitarian state, it doesn't much matter what people think because you've got a bludgeon over their head and you can control what they do. But when the state loses the bludgeon, when you can't control people by force, and when the voice of the people can be heard, you have this problem. Uh, it may make people so curious and so arrogant that they don't have the humility to submit to a civil rule, and therefore you have to control what people think. And the standard way to do this is the resort to what in more honest days used to be called propaganda, manufacture of consent. Uh, creation of necessary illusions, various ways of either marginalizing the general public or reducing them to apathy in some fashion. 
And so we see that the manipulation of the media for the benefit of the ruling oligarchy and the detriment of any form of democratic society where people actually have a say over what's happening in their society is a very old and well-established history and goes back to people like Walter Lippmann and, of course, Edward Bernays, who we've looked at in previous episodes of this podcast. But to really begin exploring and understanding this problem in its current context, I'd like to turn today to an excellent new documentary that was released very recently called Psy War. Now, this documentary is available online, obviously, at Metanoia Films, and I'll include a link to that so that people can watch it in its entirety, which I highly suggest that they do. But suffice it to say that this is a documentary that explores the roots of modern media propaganda, and more significantly, the ties between the government and the media through the use of PR, public relations firms, which are very much in bed with the government and work through the media to get the government's message out. Now, this is best known as propaganda placement, but it takes many different forms. And as you may have noticed in the clip, opening clips from today's episode, yes, there are indeed many, many, many examples of the media telling only the government's side, reporting on only the government's side of the story is a way of not necessarily lying to their viewers, but merely giving one side of the debate. Well, this is a very effective technique for limiting the debate to whatever you wish to limit to, and we've seen this technique used again and again throughout history. But right now, let's take a look at some specific techniques of how PR was used to sell and to further the Iraq war, and how the public relations industry was very much in bed with both the government and the media in making that happen. The head of the Rendon Group, John Rendon, denies that he is a national security strategist or a military tactician. Rather, he states, I am a politician and a person who uses communication to meet public policy or corporate policy objectives. In fact, I am an information warrior and a perception manager. Following the first Gulf War, Rendon was paid $23 million by the CIA to create anti-Saddam propaganda. Following 9-11, he was charged with public relations for the U.S. bombing of Afghanistan. Rendon is far from alone. Public relations has mushroomed into a $200 billion a year industry, with PR flax in the United States now outnumbering journalists. Propaganda has become the primary means by which the wealthy communicate with the rest of society. Whether selling a product, a political candidate, a law, or a war, seldom to the powerful deliver messages to the public before consulting their colleagues in the public relations industry. Colin Powell presents a now typical case. He didn't choose a seasoned diplomat for the position of Undersecretary of State. Instead, he chose Charlotte Beers, known in PR circles as the Queen of Madison Avenue. Her resume includes successful advertising campaigns for Head & Shoulders Dander Shampoo, Uncle Ben's rice, and now, Uncle Sam. You see a news show, you watch 60 Minutes or a Fox program or whatever it is, you tend to give more credibility to what you're told is journalism. If an advertisement comes on, hopefully you tend to be more skeptical of that because obviously somebody put an awful lot of money into crafting this slick TV ad and airing it. But what you probably never suspect is that that news story you just watched was also crafted by a company given to the TV station or network with the understanding that they would put their own logos on it, identify it as real journalism, and air it. Colonel Sam Gardner would eventually chart 50 false news stories created and leaked by the Bush White House propaganda apparatus prior to and during the assault on Iraq. Foremost amongst these were the lies that led to the war in the first place. It was not bad intelligence that led to the invasion, concludes Gardner. It was an orchestrated effort that began before the war and was meticulously planned to manipulate the public. In 2002, when uh, the Bush administration was conducting its uh, massive public relations campaign to sell the war, 
Out of Donald Rumsfeld's office in the Pentagon, there was something now referred to as the Pentagon Pundits Program, where literally scores of former high-ranking military generals and admirals and colonels were getting their talking points for their appearances on TV news shows directly from the Pentagon. They would literally uh, go to the Pentagon, be on phone conferences with the Pentagon, travel with the Pentagon, and then go on TV as supposedly independent sources. Although most of them were actually being paid in the private sector because these are retired military officials by defense contractors, and many of them were actually registered lobbyists for military contractors. So there's a bit of a conflict of interest right away when your bread and butter is based on being able to sell armaments and bombs and missiles, and uh, you're supposed to be just a patriotic ex-general giving an honest opinion of what's going on. And even though that's illegal, there's no way to really stop it. And the most powerful medium through which it occurred refuses to even report on the scandal. You've got just a massive problem, and that, that's where we're at. If anything, I would say that media complicity in promoting government agendas has only increased since the time of the Iraq War. As difficult as that might be to believe at first glance, it can only be the, the inevitable conclusion of anyone who looks at the way that the media pimped the swine flu hoax to such an extent last year in the service of Big Pharma to help them sell billions of dollars of vaccines that not only were unnecessary, but proved to be quite dangerous or in the way that the media has proven itself to be only too serviceable to the very same war whores who were promoting the Iraq war to let them promote the Iran war by spouting the same type of lies, misinformation, and propaganda about the great feared enemy as we did about Saddam. And I'm no fan of Saddam, and I'm no fan of Ahmadinejad, but I'm no fan of media lies that are used to sell wars that end up in the deaths of millions of people. Or we can look to the way that the media in all its forms is now desperately trying to contain the genuine grassroots political movement that is threatening all government incumbents and in fact the governmental structure in America itself that was once the spontaneous and grassroots Tea Party movement but is now being corrupted by the Republicans in the name of right-wing conservatism which has allowed it to be spun back into the left-right paradigm from which it is now easily ridiculed by those on the controlled corporate left, like the John Stewarts and Stephen Colbert's of the world, who are staging their fake media phony PSYOP uh, rally to mock Glenn Beck's rally and, oh, by the way, make fun of 9-11 Truth and people who question the legitimacy of Barack Obama as president of the U.S. Because it's all in the same boat and it's all laughable and anyone who questions the government, its legitimacy, or any of its actions is clearly so crazy that they must be mercilessly made fun of, right? And unfortunately, many people will go along with that because, as we've seen, people are willing to participate willingly in their own enslavement as long as it's fun and in the name of a good laugh. But once we've understood and fully internalized the extent to which the media is really nothing more or less than a mouthpiece for the oligarchs who are really in control of our phony political system and our staged geopolitical theater that passes for our global reality, the question inevitably becomes, what is the ultimate purpose of this and where is this media control heading? Surely we have not yet reached the ultimate peak or pinnacle of this media propaganda control over the public. So what will society look like once it has been completely and utterly subverted by the propagandists? Well, to answer that question, we're going to take a listen to Alan Watt on Cutting Through the Matrix on RBN, who in September of 2007 was reading from a French philosopher named Jacques Ellul. Jacques Ellul was born in 1912 and died in 1994. He was a French philosopher, a law professor, a lay theologian, and a sociologist, and he wrote books on the technological tyranny over humanity. He also had the foresight to understand that a key portion of that technological tyranny was the use of technology as a medium through which to propagandize to the people. In this clip, Alan Watt reads from his 1954 work, La Technique en le jeu du siècle, translated as The Technological Society in English in 1964. 
Now, talking about Jack C. Lowell and his book, one of his many books actually, The Technological Society, which eventually was published in English in about 1964, I think, about then. Now, he talks about the discipline of the techniques. And he's talking here about economics as well. He says the intellectual discipline of economics itself becomes technicized. Technical economic analysis is substituted for the older political economy, included in which was a major concern with the moral structure of economic activity. Thus, doctrine is converted into procedure. And that's very important because you have theories which become doctrine, and then it, it gets put into procedure as fact. It's actually acted out, even though it's only theory. And the whole bunch of them go together. They swear allegiance, actually, to go towards this particular theory without ever explaining it really to the public what they're doing. So he, he talks about the technicians. They form a closed fraternity with their own esoteric vocabulary. And that's the same with all bureaucracies, by the way. Moreover, they're concerned only with what is as distinct from what ought to be. This is in the foreword of his book, so you can imagine what the rest of the book is like. He says, politics in turn becomes an arena for contention among rival techniques. The technician sees the nation quite differently from the political man. To the technician, the nation is nothing more than another sphere in which to apply the instruments he has developed. To him, the state is not the expression of the will of the people, nor a divine creation, nor a creature of class conflict. It is an enterprise, very important word, enterprise, in the high esoteric circles, providing services that must be made to function efficiently. And what he means by that is, they use terms like cost-cutting, etc., when it comes to health care or certain services you're taxed on, but what they really mean is they're going to reduce your service by cutting the costs. They can't give you the same services. They use a particular vocabulary which sounds pretty good to us. We like cost-cutting, but, but to the guys who introduce these techniques, they're meaning they're going to cut back your services. That's what it means. Either that, they'll tax you more for the same service. So the use of terminology is very, very important. Because on to say he judges states in terms of their capacity to utilize techniques effectively, not in terms of their relative justice. Political doctrine revolves around what is useful rather than what is good. Purposes drop out of sight, and efficiency becomes the central concern. As a political form best suited to the massive and unprincipled use of technique, dictatorship gains in power. Again, going back to Plato, he goes through the different uh, systems, republic, democracy, and so on, and when you hear them pushing democracy, as Plato said, they're actually aiming towards a form of dictatorship because all this has been done before, you see. It always ends up in dictatorship. Now, Alal goes on to say, and this in turn narrows the range of choice for the democracies. Either they too use some version of effective technique, centralized control and propaganda, or they will fall behind not understanding what the rule of technique is doing to him and to his world, modern man is beset by anxiety and a feeling of insecurity. He tries to adapt to changes he cannot comprehend. The conflict of propaganda takes the place of the debate of ideas. Technique smothers the ideas that put its rule in question and filters out for public discussion only those ideas that are substantial in accord with the values created by a technical civilization. Social criticism is negated because there is only slight access to the technical means required to reach large, reach large numbers of people. He's talking about the media here. It's all to do with the media. Control the whole media, and you control the minds of the people by using technique and repetitive slogans and little catchphrases like downsizing, upsizing, cost-cutting, etc., etc., which the people then part themselves, but it really doesn't mean much at all to the average Joe. Now, I'm going to cut back here to page 368, where he says, Propagandistic manipulations take place under all forms of government and in all walks of life. 
may be said that we live in a universe which is psychologically subversive. Even so, modern man has no clear conception of the extent of the phenomenon. Experience cannot reveal it to him. He would have to be outside looking in. We in France are fortunate in living in a country where propaganda is still remarkably inefficient. In addition, we are acquainted with the technique of social psychoanalysis, as reported by the pre-1938 Berlin Institute of Applied Psychology and by numerous American institutes and research committees. It is scarcely necessary to add that all propaganda technicians in search of the one best way loudly proclaim the value of exploiting the great subconscious motives I have described. As I say, this book is a really must for those who are really trying to find out how their lives have been run for them, how the school system, uh, how the indoctrination went through the schooling and then was carried uh, over into the regular media right up to your, your mainstream news. This was talked about too by a guy who was an Archbishop of Canterbury back in the 40s and 50s and 60s. They called him the Red Bishop because he, he, people thought he was communistic in his ideas, but he wasn't. And he kept using a phrase that was called continuing education on the general public. Now, for the general public who heard his statements and who did not attend his lectures, it sounds pretty good. Yeah, we'll take night school courses and upgrade, as we call it now, since we're all becoming computers. But no, what he meant was the media would constantly put out new terms and catchphrases and start to tell us what to do, how to keep fit, uh, what to eat, what to wear, what kind of weather. All of these things a world, again, run by experts. Same with Bertrand Russell. That's what he said would come in. He said eventually we'll bring in a society where the average person will be unable to do anything for themselves without the advice of an expert. And we've actually gone to that step. And that's rather scary. Yes, whereas once a society ruled by experts who tell us exactly how to think, how to act, how to talk, how to dress, and what to say in any given situation would have been conceived as a nightmare, it is unfortunately more and more our daily reality, as we see more and more conversations of those around us being merely the parrot-like echoes of whatever was on the 6 o'clock news last night. We have a society that is being trained not to think for itself, and in fact being starved of the fundamental building blocks of how to think for itself, and all in the service of the oligarchy, who will, of course, be happy to step in and tell us exactly how to think on any given issue. For those who are interested in resisting that type of expert-led society where we are all merely pawns for the ruling oligarchy because we have been starved of the tools by which to understand the world around us, you might want to start getting a handle on the solution by going to TriviumEducation.com, a website that perhaps will feature in next week's How to Defeat the New World Order episode. But I leave you today with this thought, merely that perhaps in one sense the Corbett Report fundamentally boils down to media critique. I'm not a journalist, and I never intended to be such, but just given the atrocious state of what passes for the media in this day and age, I think it's the duty of every citizen out there that simply can produce their own news and media to do so, because ultimately, we will never be fed the truth from the establishment mouthpieces that are paid tens of millions of dollars to give you the most slickly produced lies that have ever been generated in the history of the human species. What does it say about our society that an English teacher in Japan is currently running circles around the controlled corporate media that deign to give us the daily news? Or that there is much more truth and information to be garnered from the average blog than there ever is from the once-revered Fifth Estate, an institution so hallowed as to be the only industry actually enshrined with rights in the Bill of Rights of the U.S. Constitution. If there is one message to take away from today's episode, it is merely this. If they are trying to starve you of information and feed you lies, then the answer is to spread the truth. That's it for today. 
I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me next week for episode 150 of The Corbett Report, How to Defeat the New World Order. those Iraqis with your lies. You take care.